Welcome back to another guest episode. My friend Elizabeth and I are here chatting today. We have been messaging back and forth and become like online buddies for, I don't know, a year now, maybe more. I feel like it's been a long time. Um, A couple years, yeah. We've gone live, I think twice maybe on Instagram. I don't know. But now we're finally making it official for the podcast. And um, so I want to introduce you guys to Elizabeth Reiner. She is a midwife practicing in Maryland and a home birth midwife, I should say. And she also has an online business. She also is a mom. She does all things. Like we love to do and talk about and promote on this podcast so welcome thank you thank you taylor can you hear me all right i can okay oh all right so i know when we were talking about you know topics and you know how we could take this conversation there was so many things that came up and I feel like we've just had so many good, juicy conversations over the course of our time that we've known each other that I feel like we could take this in a thousand directions. Um, But I just really want to have like a raw, honest mom to mom, birth worker to birth worker conversation with you and just kind of bring to light and bring to my audience, just some of the juicy conversations that we've had behind the scenes. <laughs> Ooh, okay. <laughs> that oh. sounds awesome. Well, first, I was, sorry, I was um, putting in my AirPods, but oh, thank you so much for having me, and I'm so excited for, for this conversation and to see where where it goes, because, yes, we do have lovely wandering conversations and many, many overlapping interests. Yes. So I guess we'll just start by like how you help moms and women kind of in the pregnancy, birth, postpartum motherhood phase, because that's a lot of who listens to this podcast. Um, just tell us a little bit about your work and how you got into it. Okay. So the it's like, what, how many minutes, what version of the story do you want? I'll try to get the, the quick version. But um, so the the short version is I had an amazing birth with my daughter. So I was pregnant. Um, and that was 21 years ago, which is so hard to believe. Wow. <laughs> I turned 21, my baby. Um, and while I was pregnant with her, one of my best friends, Shauna, um, the, it was just one of these serendipitous stories where the clinic where I was a single mom and I was going to this normal, like OB clinic, um, that delivered at a, a hospital in DC and the hospital actually closed it, like in the middle of my pregnancy. And my friend Shauna found this birth center, a freestanding birth center. And so I followed her. To it and that decision changed the course of my life and wow. so she was three months more pregnant than I was and I got I had the the honor and privilege of getting to attend her birth in July of her son and so that was the first birth I ever attended and then three months later I gave birth in the same bed um, and she was there with her baby and another another close friend of mine and my parents and my sister. <laughs> and um, I had just an incredible experience with, with midwives. And because of that, it was the most empowering experience I had, you know, ever had. And it really helped prepare me and get like give me the strength to um, to then go on as a mother, um, handling a lot of the challenges that came with being a single mom and co-parenting with, um, with someone else and, um, and all of those challenges. But I always kept coming back to like, okay, I did this 
so I can do that. <laughs> you know, I made it through this experience so I could do that. And it was just like, it was very gentle. It was respectful. And, um, and so then after that, I kind of started on my path to wanting to help other families experience that same joy and like create that sacred space that, that I had been blessed with. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's really cool. So you've always, as a midwife, you've always done home birth, correct? Yeah. I mean, so well, what happened after that was um, another more serendipitous thing. So Ina Mae Gaskin came to speak to our local birthing circle um, and I went to see her and then there was this protest at um, a hospital that had just fired all their midwives. I went to that and there, my midwives were there and they said, we're starting a birth assistant training program at the birth center where I'd given birth and they invited me to join. And so essentially I just started training to be a midwife assistant there and, um, and everything kind of just kept falling into place from there. So yes, I have always focused on out of hospital birth um, and then trained to be a certified professional midwife. And we are the, the experts in out-of-hospital births or community births. So my practice has always been home birth only. Okay. But when you say community birth, that could include like a birth center birth, just for the yes. listeners. Clear that up. Okay, cool. And just for the listeners listening, like there are different types of midwives as far as like Elizabeth saying she's certified professional midwife, there's certified nurse midwives, there's different licensing in different states for different types. So just things to, you know, maybe ask your midwife about, or, you know, when you're thinking about picking a provider, understanding that not all OBs are created equal, not all midwives are created equal, like, Yes, there is a spectrum. <laughs> sure. Are there things sure. as far as, because I'm looking at your shirt right now and it says midwifery is activism, which I freaking love. Like, what does that mean to you? And what does, like, serving women in a, uh, I want to choose my words carefully, but like alternative way to birth in our culture, let's say. <laughs> In our culture, <laughs> a more alternative, more almost taboo, less utilized way to birth. Because it's, what is the stat? I mean, it's one 1% or something of women that in the U.S. birth at home. It's not a lot. And maybe that's not accurate anymore. Maybe that's an older statistic. Um, no, it, it is true. Yeah what does midwifery's activism mean to you? And like, why are you choosing to serve women in an out of hospital setting? That's less traditional. Le Honestly, it's <laughs> more traditional, but yes, as you said, I'll agree with the less utilized piece. <laughs> I'm like, what, how do I use words? Because it's like home birth is like where it all started, but. Yeah, no, as you said, it's less utilized. And one of my passions is just that everyone know their birth options mm -hmm. and make those choices very consciously because that's one of the things that that is frustrating is so many people are very conscious about like how they are with their bodies and how they are with the people around them and and uh, what foods they eat and you know research what. <laughs> car to buy or where to go on vacation or whatever but don't put that same effort into um, researching and empowering themselves with choosing a provider and a place of birth that aligns with what you know who they are as people so why do you um, not to like off-road you but if you had like a like why do women put more effort into like why is it culturally more common for us to research the kind of car we're going to buy than to like research where we're going to give birth and how we're going to give birth oh my goodness I could go on for about that for, <laughs> for so long but it's been a very systemic process to be honest I mean at the beginning of the the 20th century 
most people, most women did give birth at home. And I think by the 40s, it was like 40%. And by the 60s, it was like less than 10%. So it was a very systemic disempowering of women and midwives and and telling women that you know they shouldn't trust their bodies and that they and that midwives don't know what they're doing and you should trust you know this male doctor in the hospital and um and then birth was really taken out of out of that space of the feminine power and brought into you know it was medicalized and so and those things are very deeply ingrained in our culture now. And so it is difficult, you know? Um, so I am always so inspired when I have, and I do have quite a bit of first time mothers who seek me out and seek out home birth. And I'm always so inspired by them <laughs> that they've yeah. educated themselves and, you know, have done enough research even before becoming pregnant for the first time to know that they you know, that this is what they want. Um, so. Yeah. And I'll just side note that by saying like, though hospital birth is not for everyone. And though there are a lot of options that are available in hospitals that are not available at home that you can tap into resources, you can tap into if you're at the hospital and that is some people's preference, it is still important to know whether you choose a hospital or not, where this stuff came from. Like, it is systemic. It is <clears throat> it is rooted in a disempowering of women and telling women that they're not capable and telling midwives or telling people that midwives don't know what they're doing. So regardless of whether you do end up choosing a hospital, like that's fine, but it's still important to know these things. Like you can choose a hospital birth and still know that hospitals are a for-profit system. Like it's okay, both can exist together, but you you deserve to know it. You just do, <laughs> point blank. So I kind of, yeah. um, you were talking about like, midwifery's activism and like why you why is it important for you to be in that out of hospital setting helping women have different options yeah so I mean I just personally home birth felt so right for me um I went on after after become you know being a single mom I met my husband my now husband when I uh, my daughter was six years old and um, then we got married and had a, a, another like impact, in, amazing birth experience. Um, it was actually a water birth at home, had less family and friends around that time <laughs> since I had my husband's support. Um, but still it was, it was just incredible. And, um, and so I know for me, it was like a thousand percent the right thing for me. And so there are a lot of families out there, you know, it's very empowering to the the partners um, to be able to be fully engaged in the birth process. And my daughter, you know, was fully engaged in the birth process. And it's just a family centered experience. Um, and so for, you know, that it's important to protect that and it's important to protect the normalcy of birth. And again, midwives are experts in normal and I'm an expert in knowing when is birth normal and when, and we're, when I say birth, I'm talking pregnancy, birth, postpartum, newborns, lactation. And then when is it appropriate to, to seek out that medical care because certainly there's times when it is very necessary it can be life-saving and I'm so grateful for that and um our bodies are designed to work our bodies you know are your 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 neither your midwife nor your doctor are growing this baby you know and your body knows what it's doing and most of the time when it's just supported and you have a team that believes in you and you have the um you know the pieces in place 
then birth is designed to work. So it's so important to just have that midwifery model of care as a as an option, um, as a safe, you know, accessible option for people. And um, another piece of it is for me personally, I'm very passionate about creating more diversity in the home birth community. Um, there is a, a, a health crisis in the black community of um, black mothers and babies uh, dying at much higher rates. And so one of the solutions is more, is more community birth and is more midwives and is more providers of color and I think it's so important that every, like every family can choose a provider that aligns with them culturally, um, you know, what, whatever the, the criteria are for that family, they should be able to find a provider that, you know, that really aligns with them. So I'm really proud and excited to have amazing um, black students working with me and just this like renaissance of black midwives happening in in America so that's one of the things it means to me <laughs> well and even going back to me struggling to choose my wording earlier it's like the the black midwives were the original midwives like they were the ones mm -hmm. who taught a lot of the the white midwives like yep. down the line and it is really cool to see that resurgence and it is so important because that you know the maternal health crisis is is really really real in our country for all races nationalities but like black and brown women, the fact that the statistics are so drastically much higher, it just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't add up. And it's like, what, what, like, we have to do, we have to do better. <laughs> we, we just have to, like, it's not, it's not okay. Um, yeah. And the midwifery model of care just really, like, helps um, bridge, like, a lot of the gaps that are in the um, the medical model of care, the it's individualized care. It's much more holistic care. My visits with my clients are 45 minutes to an hour long. So we're talking about things like nutrition and stress management and movement and sleep and, um, you know, all of these things that just are generally left out of the the six to ten minute OB visit conversations and not kind of catching all of those things that really factor in. Another big thing is we listen to women, like listening to women, believing women, trusting that that she is the expert in her body. So she comes to me with a concern. I'm gonna listen to it. I'm going to um I'm, I'm going to like um, address it. And I have clients sometimes who are also see seeing an, um, an OB practice. And sometimes they have a heart, like sometimes I'm telling them, please call your OB for X, Y, or Z. And they're having a hard time even getting somebody on the phone, you know, for, for something fairly serious. So there's just, unfortunately, a lot of holes in that medical system that are, um, you know, again, big systemic problems. But when you add in the systemic racism that exists and biases and all sorts of things, um, then Black women are at a, a huge disadvantage in that system. Yeah, it's, uh, who? yeah, that's a topic right there. I feel like we could definitely take that and run with it. Um, I have found that a way that I have described, because people have asked me and or I think it's kind of, oh, I don't know if it's a misconception, but I just think it's something that's not super known 
is the difference in the models of care. Like you've used that term a couple of times, the midwifery model of care. Now it doesn't mean that every single midwife practices this model of care. And it doesn't mean that every single OB, no OBs do. Like, but there is a difference between the midwifery model and the medical model. And I have a way that I describe it. I'm curious how you like generally describe it if you had to like an elevator pitch of the differences? <laughs> I would say in a word, it comes down to trust. Just like trusting that, as I said, birth is normal. Your body is designed to work um, and that you're the expert in your body. And, I'm, and I consider myself a healthcare provider. So I am trusting that when we support your body's natural you know, normal functions um, with all of those things that just are like lifestyle choices, you know, that um, that birth is designed to work under those circumstances. And of course, we're there to do whatever is necessary and to refer or transfer care, you know, when, when needed. But for me, it's about providing that individualized care, um, family-centered care and and really humanizing the whole experience and trusting the birthing person above like technology or just protocols and just fitting that person into like, you know, the system. But um, I mean, from times that I've been at a hospital with like family or friends who are sick or injured or something, like that is medicine you're trying to fix something that's wrong like there's something not right going on in their body but birth is not that most of the time you know so most of the time we're like lifeguards you know you're you can go swimming most of the time and not have a problem but we're there when if somebody needs support if they need that help um I love that analogy of lifeguards <laughs> That's really good. Yeah, because the way that I've described it to people before, and I didn't make this up, somebody, I heard this from somebody, she's like, the midwifery model is you are innocent until proven guilty, and the obstetric model is you are guilty. <laughs> and <clears throat> that's, it. I mean, it's a little bit blunt, and it's kind of harsh to say it that way. Yeah. No, that's, I, that's very accurate, yeah. Like, you are a problem or you are someone who is needing managed, you are a, you are a medical situation that is needing managed. So we are here to manage you and care for you. Like, yes, they're there to care for you. Whereas a midwifery model is like, this is normal, your body's got this. And then when something is going wonky, we'll guide you in the right direction. Um, And I think, okay, so I want to touch on this trust piece because one of the things that I work with my clients on, and it's one of my like seven steps, it's part of my framework, is self-trust. And mm. I think it's really hard for people to go into a model of care where there is so much trust in them as the birther when they don't even trust themselves. <laughs> and mm taking radical responsibility for your birth, for your body and your decisions, it's a lot of weight or it can be, it can feel like a lot of weight. I also think it can feel like a lot of power. It's very, very, important. Yeah. but it can feel like, holy shit. Like if I fuck this up, if something goes wrong, it's on me. I'm not blaming anybody else. And that can also feel, again, really, really empowering. Like, I am autonomous. I am making this choice. I don't care about X, Y, Z, other outside opinion. Like, I'm making this choice for me. Um, but I think in the obstetric model, it does get easier to kind of be like, well, my doctor recommended it, so that's what I'm going to do. And that takes the onus off of the woman. Mm -hmm. But what's been happening for now however long you said that like the transition was made what it was like the whenever the industrial we just say a hundred years yeah years that 
birth has moved more into the hospital, like women have begun to trust themselves less and less and less and less. And it's so much quote unquote easier to just pass off that trust to our provider and say, they'll tell me what I'm supposed to do. They'll figure it out. They'll know. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I see as an observer of birth, I'm not a medical professional. I'm a coach. I'm a doula is that I see time and time and time again, the things that are being told to women is not actually accurate and it's not actually based in the woman's self-interest or best interest. Nor, nor is it based in evidence either. It takes on average like 15 years for actual evidence-based care to make its way into practice. And so much of the practices that are done in the hospital are actually not even evidence-based. They're just like, this is how we do it, or or this is how we avoid uh, lawsuits. And, you know, the, they're, all, they're always practicing defensive medicine, like, oh, gosh, you know, how would this look if I had to defend myself, you know, in a lawsuit, so... Well, and it's, it's, there's actual um, research that shows that midwives have far less litigation issues because the moms that are choosing midwives trust themselves. So they don't sue their midwife. (laughs) I mean, yes, of course there are things that happen, but like moms are making decisions and they're not, when you put all your trust in someone else, you're going to come after them when something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. But when you put that trust in yourself, there's no one to go after. And most of the time, things don't go wrong. Right. Or just when people are being forced to do things in the hospital that may not be, yeah. you know, there's that side as well, is that, you know, they're not being listened to. And um, and then, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very challenging system altogether that is is not set up in, in people's best interests, as you said. Yeah. I mean, I was just saying to you off when we weren't recording anymore. I'm sorry if you hear my kids screaming in the background. Um, I think he's getting put down for a nap and he doesn't want one. <laughs> I can't hear them. Okay, good. But uh, can I just interrupt for one minute and I just want to say like I have so much respect for you and like all the work that you do and I just want to thank you for I mean you know for for this platform and for your coaching and for the doula work that you do so thank you for all the ways that you're in service to birthing families and all the ways you're empowering and educating and you know supporting because it is it is so important that people have even enough information to start asking the questions. So thank you, Taylor. Well, same to you, because if I didn't have advice to refer to, like I wouldn't be able to present options to women if there weren't options available. So obviously you doing the work you do is creating those options. And that's, that's what's so powerful is like, all of us in this work. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But one of the things I was saying to you off air was I try hard not to get triggered when I'm in hospitals and I'm hearing things being told to moms that I know are just like flat out not true or are flat out like it's not that what they're saying is a lie they're what they're saying is the truth it's just not the protocol is not based in evidence if that makes sense um you know routine pitocin after birth for instance I had dad asking about you know what is that what's that for and you know the nurse was like oh you know we just give that to everyone because it prevents postpartum hemorrhage and that's just something that everyone gets. It wasn't presented as an option. It wasn't presented. There was no risk and benefit talk about it. Um, and you know, she's not lying in the reason why they use it, but it's also not accurate 
that it necessarily prevents anything from happening. And it's also not always necessary. And doing it prophylactically for every single mom is also not evidence-based. So it's like, sometimes they're not not giving true informed consent (laughs) is also just not just plain not ethical. So it's like, even though there's not always blatant lies, it's like, you just can tell that the the evidence hasn't trickled down into practice. Whereas for you, for instance, you're not, your hands aren't tied by like these hospital protocols. So it probably allows you to, that trickle down is much quicker because you can find, ev- like you can get new evidence and put it into practice in- immediately instead of waiting mm-hmm. for policy to be written and something to be green lighted. I mean, granted, there are some things like midwives are getting policed more and more as on the state level um, and like the government level. And that's really shitty. <laughs> um, Cause you're not allowed to attend breach or twin births. Are you? Correct. So in Maryland, there's, I mean, I've been a part of the, because I've been attending birth for 21 years now, I've really seen the whole process. I'm actually, I'm proud to be midwife number seven in Maryland. <laughs> um, and so I, w- for six years, we, we worked um, on getting certified professional midwives licensed and you know, increasing that accessibility of midwives to to Maryland families. Um, And in that process, you know, there's a very strong medical lobby in Maryland um, and across the country, but especially we have Don Hopkins is a very big, you know, power player. And um, so, yeah, we had to make many concessions and some of those were um, breaches and VBAC and other things like people with a BMI higher than 35, you know, that again is roots that is in and of itself rooted in racism. But um, so we've been working for, this is going on now four years that we're trying to expand that access to people who've had one C-section. Um, but yeah, there are a lot of regulations and you know, the flip side is that now there's, I don't know, two, two to three dozen uh, midwives across the state that, that weren't, people couldn't find or access easily before, or, I mean, there weren't even that many CPMs back then, <laughs> but we got licensed in 2015. Wow. Okay. Or the the law changed in 2015. We got our first licenses in 2017. So it's been a process. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That is a lot. And so in Maryland, you wouldn't legally be able to attend a VBAC either. Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hopefully fingers crossed that that will change this year, but again, it'll still just be like somebody who's had one one C-section with a um, low transverse incision, at least 18 months apart, but that would still expand access to, you know, a third of people are going in um, or coming out of the hospital having a C-section. So, um, so that is a huge number of people who can't then access home birth with a CPM. There's a small handful of CNMs that can um, the can attend VBACs or HVACs home, home birth after cesareans, but well, certainly not accessible. I want to talk about this for a second because one of the things you said was you're an expert in normal and there is, um, normal is relative. <laughs> and so, you know, when you're being pushed up against some of this, like a gestational diabetes diagnosis or hypertension, or preeclampsia, or a high BMI, or obviously in your case, your hands are a little tied when it comes to breach, twin, VBAC, but like in my state, for instance, like my midwife, she's legally able, able to attend all three. So like in her mind, that's a variation of normal. And 
it's something that's within her scope. And obviously you would probably agree if it was something you could like legally do. So like, what does normal mean? And when these moms are going to their doctors and being told you're old, (laughs) (laughs) baby is a little bit big. Your baby's a little bit small. You're a little bit high blood pressure. You're a little bit fat. You're a little bit like, what the fuck? Like, how do we know what's normal and what's a variation of normal? And we're told we get this high risk label slapped on us so fucking quick. It's like, (laughs) yeah. That is a tough one. I don't know if I can like answer it super succinctly, but to me, when I'm like, um, there's some great, I, I don't have their names like right on the tip of my tongue, but there's, you know, there's healthy at any size. Like there's, there's different organizations, evidence-based births. There's like great evidence-based, um, organizations that can really like help break down like this is you know this is um the the numbers when it comes to like a big baby or gestational diabetes or whatever so there are certain things that like you know hypertension that does put your baby at higher risk and preeclampsia is a real thing so certain things where I'm truly genuinely concerned about my client's health or the baby's health then yeah, we're transferring care. Um, the last, um, can you hear my dog barking? Sorry. A little bit, but there was also something loud. Okay. That I, you know, like, what is that? Okay. So we have competing background noises. Um, so yeah, anything like I've had, but for me, like breach in and of itself is normal. And if I was attending a breach birth, which I can do in all of my surrounding states. So I'm like 30 minutes from from Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Virginia. And I legally could attend a breech birth at any of those. And I am trained in it. And within a breech birth, there are things that if everything is flowing nicely, you know, then um, baby's in a good position. Um, and there has been full informed consent, you know, then it can be normal. And then there, there can also be abnormal for that situation. So, um, sorry, I kind of, I feel like I've veered off of your conversation or your question, <laughs> but like, how do you define normal? Yeah, um, I think. Well, one other thing, sorry, yeah. with, with um, like, for instance, the VBACs is, the main the the thing that everyone always talks about with VBAC is uterine rupture. So the risk of uterine rupture is less than a half percent, and it is like the the same level of risk as other very serious potential, very you know again very rare but potentially serious complications that could happen, and and so that's we're we're trained to look out for signs of that and then of course we would transfer at the first sign and um people have the right to make that choice because there is no birth scenario where there is zero risk you are either choosing a set of risks at the hospital or you're choosing a set of risks at home and when people also feel like they have no support they can't find a VBAC supportive provider at the hospital. That leads people to choose an even more dangerous um, choice, which is possibly, you know, an unattended birth at home because they can't find a supportive provider. They know if they show up to the hospital, they're going to have another, you know, be forced into another C-section. So that's not, and there's a whole other set of risks with a repeat C-section. So it people very- have the right you left out of the conversation. <laughs> what What did you say? I'm saying the risks of a repeat cesarean get very conveniently left out of the conversation most of the time. Absolutely. Yeah. And so there, you, you're, it's being presented like, oh, there's this risky choice over here or this safe choice over here. And no, it's like you're always choosing between two sets of risks and people have the right to make that choice for their own body and their own family. And especially for families who want to have, you know, a larger family, they, every cesarean brings on more risks 
and um, and you know being able to have that choice to have a view back can can really make a big impact. Yeah. Whew, where do I go from here? Yeah, that's all. I, like, <laughs> I love watching you think. <laughs> I'm like, I feel like I could say so much. I don't even know what to say. Um, <clears throat> having the resources, I think, is huge. That's one of my big things is like, let me push you towards the evidence. Um, because what's being told might not always be the most current sad but true and I know that we wish that we could just go into the doctor's office and be told the most updated evidence but that's just not it's just not the case it's just not how it works um I'd love to I don't know why my head went here but I think it'd be fun because <laughs> I want this to be kind of just like I said like the conversations we're having behind the scenes and I feel like this would be one of them is like some of the things that I'm commonly hearing women told and what your thoughts are and like I don't know <laughs> I'm like because one of the things I'm you're you're basically just trying to get me to to curse right you're just like rile you yeah. up on a random <laughs> like there are some things that I hear that I'm like am I stupid like did I totally misinterpret that or are they just saying something that's totally not accurate like so I've heard a mom told um you don't want to push upright because baby will get stuck on the pubic bone and an OB said this and then very recently I heard similarly if you're not laying back more if you're upright baby will have to make a right angle or a right turn when they come out and that makes it harder for baby and in my mind I'm like I don't think that's right but then I'm like I'm like I'm like second guessing myself I'm like wait a minute am I stupid is that wrong am I wrong <laughs> so I'm like gaslighting right <laughs> like I'm crazy. But it happens because I'm over here second guessing my own damn self. But like, what are your thoughts on that one? <laughs> I mean, I I just can't even with that comment. But I what I can what I can tell you is that nine times out of ten with my clients at home, they like, I am always encouraging them to get into their labor zone. Like, I want them to be, we try to interfere, you know, we're, we're listening to baby, we're doing um, vitals when needed. But for the most part, we try to be like, quiet and hands off. So that, and again, like just encouraging. Um, and that when you trust people, and you give them that support, and tell them, you know what to do, that they generally move in intuitive ways that um, that work for them. And so maybe they're they're kneeling or they're leaning back or like sometimes laying down is the best position for them. But I would say mostly like sidelining um, or a lot of my clients give birth in water. So people just give birth in whatever position feels right for them where they feel like that that inner strength so I don't know <laughs> there is a lot lately is a lot of my clients are getting told their babies are big and they're having later ultrasounds or they're having you know 32 and then a 36 like weak growth scan and I'm like first of all why are you even having these scans like what are they for and second of all like I'm like, can doctors just stop telling women the size of their baby? Like, can we just stop? <laughs> I don't know. I I obviously don't say that to clients, but I, I, I do know that the research does show that the fear of a big baby actually causes more harm than actually birthing a big baby. Like there's more risks in the fear of it than in the size of the baby itself. And I just, 
and curious from a midwifery perspective. I mean, like you're not doing growth scans at, I don't know, like are, you're probably not doing scans past 20 weeks. Yeah. I'm for most of my clients, they get occasionally they'll get an early ultrasound and then I do encourage, but they have, you know, it's their choice whether to get the 20 week anatomy scan. But beyond that, unless there's actually a, problem or a concern then no we're not doing any routine scans um and what we are doing throughout the whole pregnancy again we are encouraging health so we're talking about what she's eating like from the get-go and we're talking about um movement like are you moving your body and joy and you're are you you know getting your heart rate up and um and sleeping well and you know how can we help you get comfortable at night and just like all these things that really have have an impact on health and metabolism and you know growing a good sized baby for you so thankfully I don't have a lot of clients who I mean literally I've only had one client have to risk out of care for for gestational diabetes and to be honest she was not very um she she knew the things that were spiking her sugars and chose to eat them anyway so you know we I can take care of people who are diet or are diet controlled but um so yeah just again going back to that word trust of like yeah you're going to when we're supporting your health you're going to grow the right size baby for you and we're also prepared like my clients can move around in labor. So God forbid, if there is a shoulder dystocia, if there is, um, you know, a challenge between, you know, the head being born and then the shoulders getting stuck, then we can, she can move. She, she's um, completely able to move positions. And usually that is all that's needed to really, you know, help assist. But there are there are different challenges when somebody is has an epidural and is laying on their back and, you know, they're very limited and there's like a, a sense of fear and panic in the room, which is going to make somebody constrict even more. Right. Yeah. It all like piles and piles and piles. Um, this one is just on my mind lately. So I'm curious how you handle it in your practice and you don't have to share if this is like too personal. I, I doubt that it would be, but how do you handle? You've never asked me a too personal question yet, Taylor. Well, I'm just don't. <laughs> I, I don't. This isn't like, def or uh, going against HIPAA or anything. But like, what is your protocol for managing the third stage and postpart, like that postpartum right after baby? Because that is one thing that has become a little bit more of a passion of mine lately, especially mm. because I did have a postpartum hemorrhage retained placenta with my first that I really don't think was actually a retained placenta. I think mm. it was all it. I, th I personally think it all happened based on the way it was managed. And mm. I am always extremely intrigued by the certainty that the hospital staff has around their well, we have to give Pitocin after. We have to massage your your fundal, you know, we have to do the fundal massage. Like those things that I just don't see home birth midwives doing. And I, again, full transparency, I attend hospital births, I attend home births, and I attend birth center births. And it is drastically different the way I see this stage managed. Mm -hmm. Potentially more drastic than the way I see labor managed. Mm. So I'm curious how you do it in your practice. Oh, I love this subject. <laughs> I'm so passionate about this because like that, those moments after birth in that hour, it like is, if there was a word like even more golden than golden hour, like we should give it to it because it's, I mean, that is everything. It's like, it's so, I mean, it's like, giving me chills even thinking about it. It's like the baby just was born. Like 
the whole world has changed. Like the baby was born, the mother has been born as a mother, the father has been born as a father, or the family has been expanded. You know, it's just like, it is so sacred. And so, and I talk through like the whole birth scenario, like we've been talking through our prenatal visits, especially at the 36 week visit, we like talk through this whole part that I want the mom to be the one touching the baby and talking to the baby. And like, I want her, you know, I want baby to be hearing, you know, hearing your voice, feeling your touch. And we do our assessments from, I mean, I am like eagle eyes on that baby and, and looking out for um, bleeding as well. But again, like when we're able to be calm and reassuring in those times, and just support normal, then that helps keep the oxytocin flowing. It helps the whole process, like the whole magical, divinely designed process of all these hormones, this orchestra of hormones that we like really have no idea about. We know like a very little amount about, but all of those things are happening in addition to like the bonding and everything. And when we interfere with it as little as possible, then, you know, things generally do work. So we try to keep like, you know, the energy low, voices quiet. And even if there is a, a problem, um, I have heard from my clients like, wow, I didn't even know how serious it was because you guys were so calm. <laughs> because again, freaking out is just gonna like that is not actually going to help the situation so um so generally you know baby's going right to mom's chest and and sometimes you know nuzzling that's gonna nuzzling with her breasts her nipples that's gonna be releasing oxytocin and again all these things like then we can be patient for the placenta as long as there is a not a reason to to wonder if there's a hemorrhage going on but as long as everybody's vitals are normal then um we're just waiting and being patient and observing so we're, we are taking we do the apgar scores we at one minute and five minutes we might sneak in for a set of vitals but if the baby seems fine and mom seems fine then we often just kind of wait and we're helping them get comfortable um, like if they're in the pool, then we're helping them move to the bed. And then in terms of like a placenta, um, I've had to go in after a very few placentas and it was only in case of hemorrhages. Um, but unless someone has a history where we've made a plan in advance to do um, like, you know, Pitocin right after the birth, which again, like literally I've done less than a handful of times. We, we have Pitocin available if needed. Otherwise, you know, we're getting baby nuzzling. We're making sure that she's emptied her bladder throughout the labor. So her bladder's not in the way, or we can give her a catheter. If the bladder is in the way, we're checking for tears. Um, sorry, I'm getting kind of technical here, but. <laughs> a lot of people don't realize that midwives have these capabilities. And I think it's really important for people to hear that. Like you do have it if you need it. You're not just yeah. like, walking in there with your little like yeah like what like (laughs) I don't know what people think sometimes I forget that people don't know these things I'm like no you do have all the things yeah yeah so um and again like just like most babies come out most placentas come out and then if there is uh, if there are signs of hemorrhage then we address those um but most of the time, just just being patient is enough um, and getting baby nursing and then um, sometimes helping mom get up to a squat or walking or emptying her bladder or whatever. Um, and then there are herbs that we can help to release placentas. And then, you know, again, in like very rare scenarios where we have to manually remove it. And I'm sorry that you had that experience and that you're left with those questions because you know, one of the reasons I'm so passionate and I love being a midwife is because I have literally heard people's birth stories, like 80 to 85, 90-year-old women telling me their birth stories. Like birth makes such a huge impact on us. Like these are stories that 
people remember their entire lives. They have a huge impact on how you move forward as a mother, how you move forward as a father in the world, like how, you know, it, and, and that's not even taking into account like the experience of the baby, <laughs> but um, obviously babies are, are healthier and um, when the mother is healthier, because they're a dyad. And this like separation that exists or the myth of the separation that exists in the medical model that like, oh, as long as you're healthy and the baby's healthy, that's all that matters or literally that you're alive, like that's what matters. But how that mother feels and how empowered she is has a huge impact on on how she goes on to mother and um and then, you know, I guess, like, especially with what's going on in the world and just, I want to say that, like, that idea of separation, like, we are all interconnected. And the idea that when we're, that we're separated is always a myth. And we are all, all connected. And so I think, you know, peace on earth does begin with birth. And how can we make that experience more peaceful, more loving, more gentle, more respectful, and, um, and just more empowering for, for families. And, and again, it's like, there are nurses and doctors and doulas with secondary traumas. And it's just like the ripple effects are so vast. So anyway, sorry, I'll get off of my, <laughs> not sorry, but I will, I will, um, here. I think it's just it it takes conversations like this where we might be saying things that rub some people the wrong way or make people feel a little bit uncomfortable because there are truths that truths isn't even the right word. There are things that are so ingrained in us as truths that when we hear something that contradicts that, it feels like your whole world is shifting. It feels like your whole paradigm of everything you've ever known is shifting. And so sometimes learning some of this stuff, it's hard. It takes time. It takes time learning that like the models that you've been told are the ones that you should trust might actually not be. And that's scary. Um, and I don't take that lightly when having these conversations, but I also think that if we don't get up on our soapboxes and say the things that need to be said, <laughs> nobody's ever going to hear them. And there is a value in saying them in a way that is empathetic and compassionate and not just like, well, you're wrong if you have a birth in a hospital or why didn't you know this? You know, of course, like that's not going to help anybody either. But at the same time, like people have to be aware. And I've had two hospital births at this point. So I'm coming from very, very like wide range of perspective of like, I have leaned on the medical system, but I also have had very different ideas of how my births were going to go. And so it's, it's a balance. It really is. Yeah. A, and it's, it's about having that autonomy because like what you said, this does affect, I mean, when you say like the peace on earth starts at birth, like this does affect how we mother and you having an autonomous birth experience where you felt centered and nurtured and supported totally affects how you're able to step into motherhood and the birthday is one day motherhood is the rest of it mm -hmm. and yet you're talking to 90 year old women that remember their births and why are we basing the the the, the baseline the standard on healthy mom healthy baby that should be the bare fucking minimum that should mm -hmm. like that's a that comes with the territory like I know this shouldn't trigger me but when I am at a hospital birth and they have that like 
they have the whiteboard and it's like mom's name, dad's name, boy or girl, <laughs> the bottom goals. his goals. And the nurse, yeah. right, healthy mom, healthy baby. And I always get so irritated by it every single time because I'm like, we shouldn't have to write that as the goal. Like, <laughs> what does mom actually want? And when I'm asking moms in in client sessions of like, what are your goals for your birth? I'm like, you're allowed to say that, but like, I want you to go deeper, like outside of that. I want you to think about your experience. Um, and what does healthy mom, healthy baby even mean? Because, okay, just because we both walked away with our lives that's what we're considering healthy mom, healthy baby. We're not considering anything else that's going to go wrong down the line or mom's mental health or baby's microbiome or baby's ability to latch and mom's ability to breastfeed when that was the biggest dream she ever had. And like, what, <laughs> who's even like, just like, what I said earlier, what did I say was relative risk is relative. I didn't say risk is relative, even though I totally believe that I said something else. Um, normal, normal. I also feel like healthy mom, healthy baby is too. Like, yeah. And I don't know. I, I mean, we both obviously get very fired up about this topic and I truly, truly do not care what women choose. Like I will wholeheartedly support with every ounce of my being, my moms that choose elective C-sections. As long as they know what it means, as long as they understand the risks and benefits, and as long as they feel like they were the ones who chose it, that their doctor didn't mm -hmm. push into it, that their husband didn't push them into it, that their best friend didn't say, oh, girl, just get the drugs. And that's why they chose the epidural that she truly was like, no, this is right for me. I utilized a tool that was at my hands. We're not going to have any shame around it. And that's all I really care about. But at the same time, we have to have these discussions because they're not being had. And moms are making decisions from an uninformed place. And that's the problem. Yeah. Um, and I hear far too often, and I'm sure you hear it all the time. I wish I would have known. I wish I would have known you when I was having babies. I wish I would have known mm -hmm. home birth was an option. I wish I wouldn't have been scared to do X, Y, Z. I wish I would have asked this question. I wish my doctor would have told me that. Like, why can't we just have these conversations up front? Why can't these, why does everybody have to have so many like hindsight 2020 yeah. moments? Well, I have a vision of like having some, some um, birth and prenatal education built into, you know, the conversations in like high school and college, because it's, it's a huge learning curve. And I mean, I'm just like, so grateful that I had the first birth that I had, because there was so much I didn't know. As I said, I like, just followed by friends to this birth center, you know? And yeah. I just think, and I didn't have a doula, like I had wonderful support. And what if I had ended up in the hospital, you know? Um, so it's just, by the time you're pregnant, it's like, there's so much to learn and you're, you're already pregnant, you know? And, and there's a lot of pressures around that. So it really is, I mean, I'm grateful for like people like you and just the, you know, internet and social media for making a lot more information much more accessible. Um, and there just have to be like more conversations with younger people um, around like fertility choices and not just about, uh, you know, birth control <laughs> and, and like sex ed, but there has to be, uh, I love talking to young people about, about midwifery care. Oh, I never even thought about that, but that would be so <laughs> cool. Yeah. Like what you said. Yeah, Last year in the spring, I got to talk to um, some eighth graders. <laughs> they had some fun questions too. I love that. Um, 
Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much. I know that we didn't get to touch on the whole like work life, mom life juggle of all of that. Cause I feel like it's hard to have these two conversations at the same time because they're so yeah. deep. Um, but I'm, I'm so glad we got to take this conversation the way we did. Cause again, I feel like these conversations are just, they're vital. Honestly, they're just vital. People need to hear them and we need to get them out in the world somehow, not just in our DMS and in our voice chats back and forth, but like hit publish. Um, so thank you. And I know you've got like clients in labor and all kinds of things happening today. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. And I just, I'm, yeah, I'm just so grateful. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Taylor. And I, I like sincerely cannot wait for our next conversation. Our next, <laughs> stay tuned for our next episode, and we will dive into all of the uh, all of the other stuff. Because, um, yeah, I love your whole you know theme of doing motherhood your way, and I certainly have learned a lot over 21 years of doing motherhood my way. So <laughs> we'll have well, that as a <laughs> what was that it starts with birth yeah it really it does and and again like we're all doing the best we can at every moment with the information that we have and so you know grace and love like those are always important things to go back to so um definitely sending sending hugs and grace and love to to all of anyone who's listening to this and that um you know it's, it's just a gift that you've found this information and found taylor yeah and i'll put all the information in the show notes i'll put how to find elizabeth i'll put um i know she dropped a couple like she dropped evidence-based birth and some other things and elizabeth do you have anything else birth monopoly yeah she's a great one um if you have any other ones send them my way our episode will come out in about a week so we've got some time to get all of the good juicy resources in the show notes so check out the show notes if you're listening there's some good ones in there and we will talk to you on the next episode